So it all dates back to when I was, I don't know, maybe two or three years old. And I was sitting next to my mom at a, at a cafe, I think. And of course, I didn't know how to write because I was only like three years old. So I was scribbling on a piece of paper. And my mother asked me if I was writing. And I said, no, I'm writing numbers. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor, and today we have a special guest. Uh, but before we get to introducing him, we will go around with quick introductions. First, we'll go to Bob, and then we'll go to Rich. I'm Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast and uh, involved with uh, putting together the J Wiki right now, which is keeping me very busy. And uh, I've been doing J for about 20 years now. Uh, I'm Rich Park. I'm an APL evangelist and educator working for Dialogue Limited. And my name's Connor, as mentioned off the top of the episode. I'm your host for today, not a professional APL, JK, BQN, or any other array uh, language developer. I program in C++ day to day, but all of those languages I absolutely love. And I have a blast recording these episodes. So we've got uh, three short announcements, I think two from Bob, one from Rich, and then I will introduce our guest for today. Okay, well, I'll start off. Um, I've got two things that are going on currently with Jay. One is, last week, Eric introduced an add-on for Array Fire. So there is now Array Fire on Jay, and you can start to run it on uh, GPUs, uh, right in test phases right now. So it, it kind of had a, a lumpy start, but uh, it seems to be running. I've, I've run it through and stuff. I'm not doing a lot of the high... Uh, High high speed stuff that you might need to do, and ArrayFire is a uh, an application which actually can allow your computer to run uh, computations from the GPU. So that's what it is, and they've just introduced that in J, which is pretty exciting because it's uh, sort of adds up things to uh, parallelization, a lot of other things as well. And the other thing that just started to happen yesterday, and I think sort of happened as a result of one of my JWiki group reports. Um, was there's talking about putting dictionaries in J, which is really fascinating because right now, literally right now, they're trying to figure out what a dictionary in J would be. And they're looking at K, they're looking at Q, they're looking at a whole bunch of different models, but they're actually talking about doing this. Uh, Eric came on yesterday and said, yeah, we've been thinking about this for a long time, but uh, we need to figure out how we would do it and whether we would do it. So it's... <laughs> It might be out next December when the, when the next beta is launched, you know, released and completely like ready to go. But uh, it's kind of exciting to watch this sort of stuff happen, which is uh, it's really neat. Well, so in uh, less technical but more uh, community oriented news, uh, there is, well, I guess when this is released, there'll be a few days left for you to be able to vote on a, a short list for a potential new APL logo. So... Uh, historically, individual companies, these vendors who produce uh, APL products, APL interpreters have used their own logos, but there hasn't really been one uh, universal logo for the APL language itself. So the community uh, has set up a page on the APL wiki, which there'll be link, uh, which there will be a link to in the show notes, and uh, you can go there and find out how to cast your vote. So that closes on, sorry. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that closes on the 10th of February. Awesome. So we got GPUs, we got dictionaries, which I assume means hash maps or some implementation like that, and also logos. So links for all of that. Um, or Bob, do you want to add something to 
Well, I was going to say, that's the big question with dictionaries. Right now, I think they've pretty much settled on a dictionary as something with key values and, and, and a, you know, a value to a pair of things. But past that, in J, what does that mean and how can you develop it in a way that's actually beneficial? And so that's, that's what's being discussed right now. Now, I should say, and I sort of mentioned it off the bat, this does not mean this is going to happen. It just means it's in discussion now, which is very cool. Interesting. I wonder if there are dictionaries that aren't hash-based. Um, I would consider it, if it's not going to be hash-based, I'd consider it calling it something different because I think in Python, they call their hash maps dictionaries. And that being one of the most popular languages in the world would probably confuse a few, or I guess maybe it wouldn't confuse the J folks because they would all just know. But Plus maybe it's uh, largely to do with the interface, right, that the J user is going to interact with how they're actually going to create these things maybe even more so than the underlying implementation. Right. I think there has been a decision not to try, and that came up, Python, because that's one of the languages that, I think that's how it all started off the JWiki. We were talking about different languages and their approaches to bringing people on. And and Python came up and then people's dictionaries and, and, and the decision was made not to try and be Python. That's not That's not an approach that is likely to happen, but we'll see. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll, uh, I'm sure we'll hear more in the future. With that all being said, though, let me introduce our guest for today. So I'll start off by mispronouncing his name. Uh, his name is Rodrigo Gerau-Sarau, and I'll give him an opportunity to completely recorrect uh, my pronunciation. Um, but uh, Rodrigo is potentially, you might know him from a number of things. He uh, operates sort of in multiple different worlds, the APL world and the Python world. So in the APL world, he is a coworker of Rich's at uh, Dialog Limited. So, I believe that makes you the fourth or fifth guest on that we've had from Dialog Limited. So soon we're going to have the full roster on. I'm sure in uh, you know five or ten years. Um, and so, yes, an evangelist of APL, sort of content creator, um, has given talks on both APL and Python. I believe he has a book called uh, Pi Don'ts and has given a talk at multiple different Python conferences. I think EuroPython and DjangoCon, you can correct me if that, that's incorrect, and um, has also given uh, uh, APL talks at sort of APL conferences. I think most recently you spoke at the Dialogue 2021 um, conference and has spoken at previous webinars and conferences before. Um, also has a YouTube channel and a blog. Uh, we'll add links to those in the show notes for you to check it out. So is constantly producing content that you can consume um, and has lots of interesting views on sort of bridging the world between mathematics and programming languages and different programming languages like Python and APL. So that's what I'll say about Rodrigo. I'll throw it over to him to give uh, so he can give his own introduction of himself and, and add anything that I've missed. Thanks, Connor. I'll, I won't be judgmental of your pronunciation of my name if you guys don't judge me too much by my English. Um, oftentimes I butcher some words, so that's fine. In Portuguese, my name is said or is pronounced Rodrigo Giron Serrão. But for all of you that don't speak Portuguese, Rodrigo is fine. You can call me whatever you want, just don't be offensive. Um, <clears throat> as for an introduction, thank you. That was actually quite a flattering introduction. I'm very excited to be here, and it's quite kind of interesting to see you as I'm I'm used to listening to you and to to transcribing the episodes. So actually, having the faces talk at the at the same time is an interesting experience. But yeah, as about myself, I don't think there's too much I have to add uh, 
I just I, I just think it's important to say that I've always been fascinated by mathematics as long as I can remember, and that explains a pretty big part of my journey. Um, and at some point, as as I was entering my teens, um, I got interested in programming as well, and I just picked it up because it was a nice way to help me solve maths problems. And that's pretty much how I've um, got gotten into the world of programming. It's mostly because of that and because of my interest in problem solving. And yeah, I just hope that this turns out to be a, a nice conversation. Awesome. Yeah. So maybe you, you want to tell us a bit more. So you were interested in mathematics, um, as was I, and I'm sure a ton of array language folks, um, and then got stepped into the world of programming. So maybe tell us a little bit more of your path from stepping into programming in your teens and then to here you are now on an array language podcast and, you know, you're working for an array language company. Um, not many folks, I think, take that path because it's, you know, the array language world's a pretty niche world. How did you end up, you know, you know, taking an interest in APL and array languages? Well, let's, I will try to not make it too long. So it all dates back to when I was, I don't know, maybe two or three years old. And I was sitting next to my mom at a at a cafe, I think. And of course, I didn't know how to write because I was only like three years old. So I was scribbling on a piece of paper. And my mother asked me if I was writing. And I said, no, I'm writing numbers. So I wasn't writing my name or anything. I said I was, of course, I wasn't. But well, I said I was. And so my interest in mathematics started early. I was, I'm not trying to say I was like very clever. I'm just saying I was interested in it. And I was always very curious, I think. And this sounds kind of cliche, but it's, well, it is true. So I was very curious. And when I was 12 or 13, I asked my father what a, what a website was. And my father told me it was a file, a text file in a server. And this didn't, this didn't make any sense to me because the only text files I knew were Word documents. And I had no idea what a server was. And so I started Googling and I found out about HTML. And so that's how I first dove into the world of programming. And then I picked up a bunch of different languages. I picked up JavaScript and Visual Basic and C. And eventually a colleague of mine um, in high school suggested I started learning Python. And so I did because I, I was curious and I loved learning bits and pieces of new languages. And for some reason, Python clicked in the sense that even though I kept exploring other languages, I always kept coming back to Python to do all sorts of small hobby projects I decided to do. So that's why I've been writing Python code for so long. For example, combinatorics was never my strong suit, but combinatorics is all about counting things, right? So I could write Python programs that create all of those objects and then they just the program just counts them for me so I could check my answers to combinatorics problems with Python. So that was always um, one of the reasons why I've, I've kept programming around. And then as for APL and the array languages, in the beginning of 2020, I started, do you all know CodeGolf, the CodeGolf website? Okay, so I started posting um, problems over there and people would answer the code of challenges in all sorts of crazy languages. And I started seeing people answering in APL. And I thought because of the context, it looked like APL was a, an esoteric language, like created with the sole purpose of solving code of challenges. But then I found out about the APL orchard 
and I met Adam over the internet, and so I started learning APL. Adam taught me over over at the APL Orchard, and at some point Adam asked if I wouldn't be interested in interning with Dialog. So I sent my CV to them, and they were interested, and so I did a summer internship working on mastering Dialog APL. And I guess they liked my work because they said that they'd be interested in keeping me when I was done with my master's thesis. And so when I did finish my master's thesis, I joined Dialog and have been working with them ever since been a one-year-long relationship by now. Yeah, so it actually feels a bit longer. <laughs> You're already tired of me. <laughs> still, still, haven't finished that, still hasn't finished that damn book. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a long book. <laughs> it is. It's a big job, though. <laughs> Turning, you're turning it into an ebook, and uh, it's also it was published originally 2009. So Rodrigo's also updating a lot of the sections for language enhancements and other stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, creating new chapters and whatnot. So what does the? So I guess for I'm sure there's a bunch of listeners that are hearing about mastering Dialog APL for the first time. Does one of you, Richard Rodrigo, want to give a high level short? overview of what it is what it covers up to currently and what the goal is with the the future version or edition i'm not sure what it's being called 2.0 I, I guess we're calling it a rework um can we can we just say medapple because it's faster so medapple which is short for mastering dialogue apl is is a book that was published in 2009 and was written with the purpose of serving as a apl tutorial and it's like 800 pages long it's a huge book and it covers like all of the language and then some some other relevant tools like charting tools and databases and whatnot. But this was 15 years ago and in the world of technology, 15 years is a long time. So plenty of new things were added to APL. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking the old book, which is a, it's a paper book you can buy, but it's also available for free as a PDF. And what I'm doing is I'm going over the book, rewriting it, What's pretty much everything I'm writing, I'm keeping it the same, maybe just updating some examples, but then I'm adding the new things and I'm trying to figure out what goes where in terms of keeping it a cohesive um, book that teaches APL. But it's just a matter of really updating things, maybe removing some examples that are outdated because now new primitives solve that specific thing Um but yeah, the purpose is to have a you can you can actually go to mastering.dialog.com and you have the the web version of the rework. So you can see how far I've come by going to that website and checking the the rework there. Awesome. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to the reworked version. I've used the PDF version as a resource, but yeah, definitely it doesn't cover anything in the last decade of which if you go to the APL wiki page for features and things that have been added with the new versions, I mean, what version was Dialog APL? 12.0. 12.0, yeah. And now we're up to 18 point something, right? Soon to be 19.0. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a, it's a lot of, a lot of language versions and it wasn't only like one or two things that went into each, each version. There's a lot of stuff. So, um, and I think most of, most of the tacit stuff, of course, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast, um, isn't in the, 12.0 version i don't think you're right all right so skipping back what prompted you to add your own problems you just just were curious to see how people would solve these in different languages and you, you knew about it from somewhere i'm not entirely i i honestly don't remember i stumbled on the i had stumbled on the website 
a couple of years earlier and I, I did create an account but I never went there and then for some reason I stumbled upon it and I don't know I guess my nature just propelled me to start posting challenges because it's something I like to do I don't know um, and I realized it was a community filled with people that actually love solving challenges so creating a challenge for a bunch of people that enjoy solving it is very rewarding and so I started posting there um, I I don't remember why I just I just did <laughs> okay and so you start posting these you see APL solutions and then you find yourself on APL Orchard after you know looking into APL a little bit. Um, yeah, what was what was that like? I mean, most people, I mean, we've talked about this countless times on this podcast. They see APL and they're just like, oh, this is a crazy language. Um, and then they just they just either they either run away or they ignore it. They don't usually walk towards it. Uh, <laughs> um, so what what piqued your interest? I guess. Uh, so the first thing that sparked interest was just seeing APL code because of all the glyphs that was very new to me. Because even though I guess we could say I had written code in many different languages, but they were all very similar, right? Using English keywords and whatnot. So APL and some of the other languages that you can find on CodeWolf, they, they strike me as very different because they tend to use different symbols. And APL especially because the glyphs, the Unicode symbols that they use, not all of them or most of them are not word, um, sorry, letters, like letters of the Latin alphabet. And on CodeWolf, most of the esoteric languages make use of those 26 letters plus all sorts of accents on top of them. So it looks different. It's like ASCII, right? Yeah, not, not only ASCII because it's only... It's not there's not enough characters in there. But a lot of the the golfing languages are like that, right? Yeah, yeah. But some of them also use like letters and accents, and it's so it it looks more different, but it still looks familiar to me, especially because in Portuguese we have plenty of accents in letters. So, but APL looked very different, and because I'm inherently curious, I thought, well, let's try to learn a little bit of this, and then Adam just. It's, it's not Adam's fault, but Adam just wouldn't let go. And it, it looked very interesting. And the, what do you call it? I, f I feel there's a very high affinity um, that APL has with mathematics. And because I'm also very into the world of mathematics, I, I guess just it just made sense to keep learning because it looked very interesting and it, 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 it felt familiar in a sense because the things, the things I was learning they were immediately relevant um, when I was playing around with mathematics. And I guess that just, it hooked me because I'm, I just kept on learning more. Interesting. So it sounds like basically curiosity, which is exactly what we talked about. I think, was it last episode? Collecting curious people with, uh, with Aaron and then also um, a predisposition towards uh, mathematics are the two things that kind of hooked you in. For me, yeah. And so how do you go, or maybe... At that point, you already sort of had entered because now you've you've got your blog, you've got your YouTube channel, and um, you are trying to sort of create content that you you know it says on your blog sort of bridges the world between math and programming, and um, and you've and you're not just giving talks about APL, you're also giving talks, and the book that you've written is on Python. Um, do you want to talk a bit about sort of your your strategy there of you know um, having a foot in Two different worlds or multiple different worlds and and how that influences the content that you create 
well calling it a strategy i think is too far-fetched because i don't think there's like a I, I i'm not being strategic in in having python content and apl content it's just that i what's i guess what's interesting is that or what maybe we could talk about uh, and sorry to maybe redirect you is the way that i feel apl has influenced my python code because i i wrote i was already fairly let's let's say fluent in python when i started learning apl and learning apl meant i was learning a whole new paradigm right because array oriented programming was essentially new to me even though i had i had seen numpy um and so learning apl and learning the array oriented paradigm actually influenced my python code and and i think that's that's something that's quite interesting and it goes back to to this quote i keep i keep quoting uh, or citing or whenever i get the chance which is that a language that's gosh i keep forgetting it as well um what was it like a language that doesn't change the way you think is not worth learning yes thank you <laughs> by alan perlis yeah. yeah every every apl programmer picks that up at some point uh I think it's at the beginning of the structure and interpretation of computer programs as well, which is uh, a very famous textbook that has nothing to do with APL, although it mentions APL several times in footnotes and stuff like that. Um, Rodrigo, can I, can I ask you about, was, uh, so you did the, the YouTube um, series of videos on learning, learning APL with neural nets, yep. so neural networks, you implemented that. Was that pretty early on in you learning APL and seriously trying to do APL stuff. Yeah, it was. And you said you mentioned NumPy before. Have you done a similar thing like in Python or using Python frameworks as well? Yes, I have. Yeah. Because there's one there is a thing that comes up uh, in discussions of array languages versus other ones and it uh, or you know conventional languages that either I don't know have array semantics or like NumPy it's a it's a package designed to kind of mm -hmm. uh do array processing within Python. And it's this idea that somehow you can take, I don't know, the specific parts that people perceive as useful from the array languages and just inject them into the other ones. But did you find there's actually a more some other difference when you actually went to use APL versus, you know, a similar experience in Python? I don't know if you used NumPy, but Yeah, no, I I did use them. I, from my limit, so everything I say, of course, is tempered by my own experience and my own views and whatnot. But from my limited experience, it's it's almost insulting to say that you can take whatever from APL and just put it into NumPy and that you get the. I mean, you can get good things from APL and you can put them in NumPy, but it's not it's not the same thing. Writing Python code with NumPy is definitely not the same thing as writing APL. For the particular example of the neural networks, I used NumPy because at the core of the neural networks, you have just a bit of linear algebra, some matrix multiplications and whatnot. And so using NumPy for that makes a lot of sense because I don't want to be creating my own matrices from scratch and implementing matrix multiplication and whatever. But doing neural networks so so the, the matrix multiplications, obviously I'm going to do them with NumPy, but then everything else, the whole architecture and everything else will be Python. You have some for loops and some if statements and some functions and some classes and whatever. With APL, 
I'm doing everything in an array-oriented way. So obviously, matrix multiplication is still matrix multiplication, but everything else is done, let's quote-unquote, in the APL way. And so it's, it's very different, right? There's just a tiny subset that looks very similar because it's matrix multiplication and vector addition and linear algebra, but then everything else looks very, very different. Rodrigo, does it make a difference if you're doing uh, APL-style thinking with the um, machine learning and, and AI and that kind of stuff, does it change the way that you do it compared to how you would do it in Python? I know they would look different, but does it change your perception? It does. I, I don't think, I, I don't have to be writing um, machine learning-related Python code to be influenced by my APL experience. Something as simple as what's called a list comprehension in Python, the way I write those was very influenced by the fact that APL has um, scalar functions um, and the fact that you can combine, I don't know, adding two vectors in APL, you just add them. But in Python, first you don't really have vectors, you have lists. And the typical way or what a beginner would definitely do is use a for loop to go over both lists at the same time and then add them. And list comprehensions turn this upside down and instead of having the for loop um, in a highlighted position and then the addition or whatever operation you want to do, list comprehensions put the transformation you're doing at the front and the, the ceremony related to the for loop, they put it on the right. It's in a it's not as a um, it's not so highlighted so the, the 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 transformation which is what's important right it's what matters is that you're adding things it gets highlighted the transformation gets highlighted and i only understood that this was what list comprehensions were doing so i only understood that list comprehensions were nice this was the major advantage of a list comprehension because I use APL and because in APL I essentially only do the list the, the data transformation for example and just things like being more comfortable with doing what's what I've heard people call like data-driven conditionals and using booleans to to implicitly but also kind of explicitly change the results you're computing I got that from APL because in APL, booleans are just zeros and ones, and it's it's very natural to, I don't know, sum a vector of booleans, right? And so it, it, it makes a world of a difference to know, know array-oriented programming when you're writing Python code and probably any other uh, language. So I, I would guess part of it is once you have that understanding, once you realize that, and you go into adjust what you've done or make a change to what you've done, you're making that change in a completely different level of understanding because you're focusing on a different part of the program to make the change. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like I it's just, you have a whole new understanding. I've, I've written list comprehensions way before knowing APL and only now because of APL, I can definitely say list comprehensions are nice because the data transformation is under the spotlight and this only clicked because of APL. I've been trying to, like, I've been wrestling with this recently because I have the exact same thing that, that APL functional languages in general, they just, they completely change the way I write code in other languages. And 
just the other day, you know, because Wordle is the, you know, it's the fun thing of the, it's the fad of the whatever. Not sure if it'll be the year. New York Times just bought Wordle, so I think we can all say rip to our streaks. And um, as soon as as soon as my streak is gone, because uh, you know, humble brag, I've never lost, so uh, I, I have like a, a whatever n out of n. And as soon as that is gone, I'm done with Wordle. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's like I'm not sure if everyone in this call will know about Snapchat streaks, but it's like as soon as you lose your Snapchat Snapchat streak of like a hundred, it's like, do you really want to start over? It's like, no, not really. Um, so if New York times, if you're listening, cause we know we probably have the whole staff of the New York times listening, uh, you better keep my streak alive. And if you put some behind some paywall and reset it to zero, uh, <laughs> I'm done. but anyways, not the point went on a tangent there. Um, is that I was recently writing a Python script to do some like wordle analysis. And, um, at first I wrote something that was like a nested for loop, you know, over the words in the dictionary and the letters in the words or something like that. But then very quickly using exactly what Rodrigo was saying, you know, list comprehensions. And honestly, I think that like list list comprehensions, generator expressions combined with destructuring um, or iterable unpacking, I think is what they more commonly call it in Python and, and zip. Like you can get, you can get so much, you can get so far with just like list comprehensions, zip and iterable unpacking and enumerate as well. Um, Zip and enumerate. I just use all over the place. And uh, at first, when I wrote the first piece of Python code, I was like, ah, nested for loops, they suck. But then very quickly, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't, this doesn't need to be a, a for loop. I can change that to a, a list comprehension. And then, oh, I can change that one to a list. And at the end, I was using counter as well, which is a collection that sort of mimics uh, group by. And um, you need to know all the little things. You need to know a zip and enumerate and, and the counter collection and how to use list comprehensions. But at the end of it, I was like, oh, this is actually, this is actually quite nice code. Like, it started off awful, but because I know functional techniques and like array techniques, um, it ended up really nice. And I was thinking to myself, like, this was actually quite pleasant. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not very sad that I'm in Python right now. Like, it's a bit um, irregular, like the fact that, you know, zip and enumerate are built in and um, list comprehensions are part of the language. And then I have to reach for collections and know that counter is there to get the group by stuff. Whereas in APL or in other languages, it's, it's all a lot more regular. But... Um, Anyways, my I've been wrestling with like this idea of like, do I really need a full blown array language, or do I just need a nice language that has all these facilities and that I know how to use them? Um, and like, there's a bunch of different quotes that I've heard. You know, there's the imperative shell functional core of like try to design the core of your programs functionally, but like obviously you need a bunch of I/O on the outside. So like, if you've ever tried to write that game of like the guessing game of you know you randomly choose a number and then is it, did you guess too high or guess too low? And then you just go back and forth, like writing that game in any language, it's like an 80% just like reading and parsing input and then printing stuff to the screen. Like it ends up looking terrible in any sort of functional or like array language. Cause you're just using like flow control and like a while loop until the answers guess correctly. Um, and, and I also heard another quote recently that was that Elixir was like a functional language for the working person in that it's got all the functional, you know, uh, things that you'd want, except for algebraic data types, I think, um, which is sad. should add that Elixir. Uh, but it's, it's also gives you the ability to do all the things that you might want to do in terms of IO and, and, you know, Python and these scripting languages. And so you can very easily do that kind of functional core imperative shell. And I, I feel like maybe I haven't coded enough in APL, but like that's lacking there. Or like we do have the flow control sort of if and and whatnot, but 
Um, anyways, that was just like a, a long-winded, incoherent ramble of, you know, what, what is like the ideal language? Like, and it, it just came from like coding in Python and at first being unhappy because I wasn't an APL. And then realizing at the end, after sort of refactoring the code, that it was like, ah, this is actually quite nice. Like most Python programmers aren't going to program like this, but like I made myself happy um, because the language offered a lot of the stuff. And it's like, should we be trying to get people to come to languages where that sort of behavior is encouraged more? Or should we just be doing, you know, Python talks like Rodrigo and trying to influence the Python community that, hey, you can you can code in this method that's nicer. I'm not sure if, if folks have thoughts or I don't even really have an opinion. It's just an incoherent, like I said, long-winded ramble. Bob? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think so much in terms of individual languages. I think it's paradigms because I think if I, I was, I was lucky enough when I did my university training, I had a comparative languages course. And in that course, I think it did PL1, which dates me, um, and Lisp, which was at that point, the original Lisp and APL. And those are three different, very different paradigms for programming. And, and at that time, <laughs> this again dates me back on batch processing with computers compared to, with, which was PL1, compared to interpretive languages like Lisp and APL. And it changes, it radically changes the way you look at programming. Just the difference between compiling a language and waiting for it to come back from and finding out that it compiled okay and then it was optimized and then you get your result as compared to typing in something on the screen and getting a result back in a REPL. And at that time, Lisp and APL, I think, were the two that were predominant that were doing REPLs. I guess, um, I'm trying to think, there was probably a couple of others that were like Snowball and a few others that were maybe using that modeling stuff, Simula maybe. But... It was very different from what people were traditionally being taught in computing languages. But when you start looking the, the more nuanced as opposed to uh, interpreted compared to compile, you get the different ways of looking at data, different ways of looking at functions. Functional programming starts to show up, which again is a different approach. Object-oriented with small talk and things that show up, that's a different approach. I think you end up taking a little bit from all the different paradigms. Now, which language you use in a paradigm, I don't think is as important as being exposed to that different way of looking at the whole process. Because I think the different way of looking at the process really does change the way you look at the overall thing. And uh, at that point, when you've got sort of a sense of the different paradigms, the different languages just becomes syntactic details. You do it this way because this is how they interpret it. But the overall look at it, I think, is more to do with the paradigm. Do you have thoughts, Rodrigo? Yeah, I want. I think I was in the back of my mind. I was thinking about what Connor said, and now I think it plays nicely with with what Bob said because I also wrote a bit of code to solve Wordle, and I started out by I didn't do it uh, in Python first. I started by playing around with it in APL. And you can do imperative programming in APL, but it, it, it favors, APL favors array-oriented programming a lot. So I, I obviously started by writing some array-oriented code, you know, to filter some words, and then I have these clues, so these letters can be here and whatnot. And, well, I played around a bit, and I figured out, okay, so this is the kind of code I need if I want to... I don't know, take a list of clues, take a list of words and figure out which words could be the next ones. And then 
I put that away and then I opened Python and I, I started doing the same thing because I was essentially, exactly, I was challenged by someone on Twitter from the Python community. And so I thought it made sense to present a Python program. But my initial thinking and my initial my initial train of thought was done in APL because I, I could very clearly see in my head the matrix of words that they all have the same length. So why wouldn't I stack them up in a matrix? And then I knew I was filtering by columns and whatnot. So it made a lot of sense. So I played around with it in APL. And when I had it figured out, I just wrote the, the Python shell around the APL core. And of course, I didn't write APL code in Python, but I did what, what you just mentioned. I used counter, I used generator expressions, I used zip, I used enumerates, like literally those tools. And it's it's just a it's just a way of it's just the fact of having the right mindset. Because if I hadn't known APL and from your description, maybe you too, I would have written a maybe a double nested for loop or a triple nested for loop or whatever, and I would be done with it. This is a story that we uh hear quite a lot with recent Know, adopters of APL is when it comes to actually solving a problem, they'll think about it in this way from what they've learned. But when then at some point they have to, they're going to translate it into some other language, sort of just for uh, the utility that other people speak it already. You know, yeah, that's what it happens. Or for other reasons, this idea of uh, array languages is good for prototyping and exploration and things like that. Uh, comes up quite a lot. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like, what role does the Google ability of the language play? Because, like, I actually did think about writing this little Wordle solve Wordle solving script in um, in APL, but I knew down the road what I wanted. So the so what my script does is it it you provide it two lists, basically the list of your guesses. And then the list of the, you know, five character strings where a Y represents a yellow, green represents green. And I guess, should we, now that we're like, this is half of a Wordle episode, should we explain what Wordle is to our listener? Uh, it's, it's basically a mastermind game. Hopefully you're familiar with that game. But if not, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you guess a five char character word. So, uh, you know, for instance, uh, tears, T-E-A-R-S. And you're going to have six guesses in total. And the goal is to guess the target word, which you don't know. And say that uh, your target word is tally, T-A-L-L-Y. Because you guess tiers, T is in the correct position and A is in the wrong position. So your T will be lit up green and your A will be lit up yellow. And then so with that information, you can make your next guest. So a uh, next guest might be... Um, I don't know, what's a good off the top of uh, Talon, like T-A-L-O-N, Talon of a Falcon. Um, and so then you'd get T-A and L all lit up green with the O and the N as just nothing. And so from there, you make another guess at so on and so forth. Um, and the other key thing is when you when it isn't lit up, you know that letter is not in your word, in word. So it's you're not just being told where it is and if it's somewhere in the word, but if if a letter doesn't show up, you know not to use that letter again. Which is I, I thought was kind of interesting when my wife plays with it. I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's it's addicting for sure. Especially the, I I love Scrabble, and so it's a you know Scrabble adjacent kind of game. Um, but so the one thing about Wordle is that it doesn't use a full list of five letter words. Uh, so in the Scrabble dictionary, there's like eight thousand nine hundred you know thirty something five letter words, but the list that they use is only roughly two and a half thousand long. 
And so when I initially wrote my script, I just, I happened to have a Scrabble dictionary text file on my computer. So I just sort of used that as the basis. Um, but then a couple people, cause I tweet about it. A couple people were like, you know, Oh, you know, it's not the Scrabble dictionary. Uh, there's a, you can get the wordle list online. And so, uh, my program, basically you'd give it the list of your words and the list of your guesses. And then, you know, the yellow and green status, and then it will show you based on, you know, after your first guess, how many words are there less that left that you could possibly guess. So, you know, after your first guess, mine is usually a rose, A-R-O-S-E, there'll be like 400 or 500 possible guesses. And then after your next guess, um, I think yesterday's was, uh, so we won't be spoiling, although this will be out, you know, a few days, but in case if you guys are playing it and you haven't done it yet, yesterday's, so it's already done, was rung. Is that right? No, it wasn't. It was one that didn't have any... Well, we'll just assume... Who who plays it? Does anyone play it here? What was yesterday's? I can't remember. Um, I'm beginning to see why your streak is still intact. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, anyways, there was one where a rose missed on every single letter. And then, oh yeah, the word was light. L-I-G-H-T. Um, and so I guessed a rose. It was a complete whiff. So then my next guest was until... And then, so I think after the first guess, there was 300 left. And after until, there was like, you know, 30 words that you could possibly guess. And then I guessed filth. And then after that, there was only like one word, which was light or something like that. Um, but the thing is, is it underneath the, or underneath the number of guesses that it shows you a number, it gives you like a uh, sort of what a really good guess would be based on some sort of proprietary, not proprietary, some random metric. It's just it's something really simple that I came up with. Um, but it, it chooses that from all of the Scrabble words. And what I wanted eventually was to color code it so that it would show up in my terminal as green if it was a valid word or word, and then red if it was only in the Scrabble dictionary. And so this long-winded explanation is all to say that uh, I thought about, you know, at the end of the day, this is what I really wanted. I knew I could get to like the halfway mark before the colors and like tabulating something would actually have been pretty simple, you know, loading two dictionaries in, checking whether they exist in one or the other. That's brilliant for APL. But then as soon as I need to color code the words, I don't even know where to begin. And I know in Python, even though I don't really know where to begin either, I've done something like that in the past and quickly Googling how to change the color of something in the terminal, you get like three different options, all of which are just, you know, a pip install something and you're off to the races. And this brings me back to my original question after a 10-minute ramble of, you know, what is the importance of the Google ability of a language? Because I basically chose Python because I knew that I could get to my endpoint, like, uh, e quite easily without a lot of extra effort to, like, learn how to change the color of something on the screen. Whereas for APL... I don't, I would have to, I don't even know if I, I probably couldn't do it in the terminal. I'd have to figure out some way to launch some sort of panel, like J panel color box thing. And I've seen Aaron Shu uh, do it on like some of his talks where he just like, he has this little graphics GFX and then boom, everything's changing colors, but he does it so quickly. I have no idea what he's doing. Um, anyways, I'm not sure if, if folks have thoughts on. We'll ask him to make a little tutorial. Yeah, <laughs> there is also a a terminal based GUI thing, but uh, I can't recommend you use it. But uh, back in the day, <laughs> people were making little terminal based graphical interfaces, and you can uh, you can do it there. The default display for some application uh, that comes with Dialog has some really awful color scheme. Uh, so <laughs> also, uh, I'm saying yeah, yeah, these things are possible. But you're absolutely right. The Google ability makes that 
uh, super appealing. You to, you, so you get to a certain point, is it like it, it's influenced the way I write APL, but then I still didn't choose APL because I knew that there was some extra 20% that I would, would be a little bit too hard for me to figure out. And I just like, ah, screw it. I, I can do this in Python. <laughs> Rodrigo, you're going to say something? Yeah, but it's, I'm not sure if I'm just clinging too much to this specific example, but I think that this wasn't really a matter of, or maybe I'm misunderstanding what the Google ability of the language means, but it, this doesn't feel like an issue with being hard to Google about the language. It's just that you were missing that final tool to do the terminal colored stuff, right? Because in Python, you would do maybe pip install reach, which is a tool I've been using a lot lately to do actually highlighting, like you've mentioned. And it's just, you don't have that already in APL. So probably no one built a reach for APL and you would have to look at maybe under the hood of reach and realize, okay, this is just using NZ escape sequences and you would have to do it in APL yourself, I think it's just the fact that maybe not many people share their tools. Well, my guess is that, you know, if we were playing the Aaron game and he was here, like if we challenged him to do this, he could like, <laughs> I guarantee you, sure, you might not be able to do it in a terminal, but it's not actually like a, a terminal based thing was not what I was necessarily after. It was just like a, a color coded, you know, whether it was a pop up window or some sort of graphics panel or something, um, or if it was in line in the ride editor. Uh, all of the above work. It was just sort of like the coloring of text based on some sort of, you know, information. And my guess is that APL, definitely you can do that. The question is, is like, what is the barrier to like me figuring that out? And I can't Google it, which means I need to either go like my best guess, my probably what I would do is I would try and go find like a, a webinar talk. Cause I know that there's been a, a bunch of webinar talks from past dialogue conferences with people talking about graphics and um, plotting and stuff like that. And like that, that would be where I would go to try and find that info. Um, because I don't think, I don't think Googling would work and even going to like the APL wiki or trying to find like a tutorial. Like, I don't th I think that would be, that'd be very, very hard. Um, if it exists, like, I'm not even sure if that tutorial exists. I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, Bob, yeah, this, this sort of strikes on two things for me. One is um, the the approach we're trying to take to the JWiki eventually is to provide those kind of access to those kind of tools. So that's a huge job. It's not going to be done in months or probably even a short number of years. But the idea would be that you would have access to those tools through that, and you'd get a, a you know either tutorial or or some kind of a framework that you could look at. What the bigger issue, I think, is, and it was striking me partly because we're having Rodrigo on as a guest, was there's a generational thing that happens with the array languages. There's an older generation that often started things out, and for some reason there's a middle generation that is kind of missing, I think. And at the time when other languages were coming on and developing these other tools, that wasn't happening with the array languages. They were sort of going off on their own merry way, doing their mathematics, doing their financial, their fintech stuff, all that stuff's happening, but not the media, not the web, not all that other stuff that the other languages were making use of. And now what I can see happening is you've got an older generation that 
does isn't versed in those things, wasn't developing those tools, and a younger generation coming in, and there is one coming in, which I think is tremendously exciting, being one of the graybeards, literally. Um, you see another generation coming in, and the, the good news is they're coming in and they're interested in this because it is a different way of looking at things. The challenge is they come in and they, they look at it and go, but where is, how do I do the graphics? What do you mean I have to, this is nuts. Why would I have to do all this work? I can do all these other things with these other languages. And often with Python, what's mentioned is the libraries. You can do any number of things with Python libraries. That's a big advantage of Python. Where those libraries are, there are a lot of libraries with the array languages as well, but they're not in the areas that would be popular with most programmers today. And I'd love to get a sense from you guys, since I think you're at least trending towards the younger generation, <laughs> whether you see that difference. Um, again, when I say generations, I'm generalizing. Look at that. Those subtle shots fired, subtle shots fired there. Uh. I mean, well, I've, I do have to mention, well, I've got to mention something I've been uh, looking into sort of recently as well. And uh, I don't know, hope I don't get shot or fired for <laughs> saying this but when you look at the you know dialogues more mature tools for uh graphical interfaces and also graphics plotting and stuff they're both well dialogue came uh came along a lot for you know windows desktop applications and, and moving things which used to live on mainframes onto modern desktop computers or were they? How long's it been <laughs> since uh, since desktop computers turned up? Um, but you know, a thing called Quad WC is uh, is sort of a a really rich uh, interface to WinForms and Win32 GUI and stuff. So if you want to build that, uh, there's actually about a third of that Mastering Dialog APL book from 2009. The last third of that is all about creating GUIs on on Windows. But as Bob mentioned, it's kind of uh, the rest of the world has said, well, we're going to use WebStack, I guess. That's why we do GUI now. So, you know, we're working on figuring out exactly what the uh, the dialogue story is going to be for that. You know, there's the dial GUI, dialogue user interface. name used to be my server, or my, my server still exists. But, you know, um, there are things that are looking into that. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, our plotting and sort of reports stuff something called sharp leaf and sharp plot i don't know if you've heard of those but um you know they're also touted you know they're really quite mature really rich packages but they were sort of designed around print media right you know actually publishing printed reports and books so they're really geared for that um so yeah it is it's a it's a little bit of an open question it is a lot of what bob said where uh, APL kind of the array languages lived in their own world while while the I don't know uh, Python and that lot were developing these packages to to collaborate and maybe a little bit for the Googleability a bit of a chicken and egg problem where you know by now there's enough users to generate all of these Stack Overflow answers uh, for those more popular languages and it's just now going to take a bit of time uh, before you can just Google you know. How do I make colorful words in dialogue Yep, and get a decent answer? Maybe I should do a live stream where I actually attempt to do this and watch. It'll be over in 20 minutes because I'll, I'll find something. But um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting... It's interesting because like, I'm a huge Array Language fan and I was like, honestly, I could do 
when I when I first was like, oh, it'd be cool to have like a little sort of it's a teaching tool. It's like I say hacking wordle, but really it's in hindsight how good were my guesses, um, and like you know was this a good guess? Did it narrow it down to only three or whatever? Um, and it's like I knew I could do eighty percent of it in a language like APL, but I ended up choosing Python um, because I knew I could do a hundred percent, even though I you know didn't fully know. I knew uh, a couple Googles and I'd be on my way. And then at the end of it, I wasn't even that sad. I mean, actually, the, the coloring code is pretty horrific. Um, and that probably I should... That's the thing, is I listen to a Python podcast, and they're always talking about um, rich and textual. So I probably should have made use of that. But I made use of some library called Term Color, and just... <laughs> just It's a, just a bunch of print statements all over the place uh, inside a loop. It's pretty bad. Um, but that's the thing, is I don't even, I don't even know like if, if you could do it in APL... Yeah, I guess it would just be like some multiply, have some mask that's just like a one for red and a zero for green, and it would, maybe it would be easy as easy as that. It came up in the orchard, I think, last week or something. People were talking about, um, you know, introductory examples of, of people who are like new to programming, and some of the most appealing things are these graphical things, especially making games or or websites, which I think is also where I started, like Rodrigo. Like you, know, you see these websites, you're like, oh, how do I do that? And then you learn it's not that, not that hard, really. <laughs> Up to a point. Well, back in 2000 and whatever. Yeah, you could you could think of a, cu- a couple like really cool, like, you know, building a Tetris in APL. Like, that's like a perfect kind of game because... Yeah, but um, so, so, so Adam kind of objected at the time because he was like, well, the problem I find is that the... The, the part with the user interaction, the user input is just like so much boilerplate gets in the way of the, the problem you're trying to solve. And it's like you were saying kind of like 80% of what you were doing that you thought you could have done in APL is the actual problem you're trying to solve. It's the extra 20% was all this sort of yeah. gubbins around it to make it a nice, yeah, the shell to make it presentable and, and sort of user-friendly and bits like this. Um, but I do think that is something that would be useful to have in, in array language examples is an easier way to get into those things where I don't know, there's a lot of power to the the feedback, both of like making something that you can then play with afterwards, but then also something that you can show other non-technical people and they do know the sort of value of what you're showing them, like without it being like, Oh, you did that in three lines of code or good for <laughs> you, mate. I've no, I don't know. <laughs> it's a gibberish to me, you know, but when they can like play with a game or they can see a graphical thing happening on the screen, you know, you can show that off as a, as a young kid learning programming and go, oh, look at this cool thing I did. And your parents can go, oh, yeah, that is actually quite nice <laughs> without going, oh, yeah, okay. I don't, I don't know what that means. but Yeah, there's definitely some value to having like... Yeah, I think there's something to that. A flashy example. Um, and a lot of time flashy examples come with flashiness in the... But it's true. And I think most, most of the languages, yeah, the code for that bit looks a little bit... Uh, not that exciting and possibly a bit ugly but i think that's that's the that's the whole point is right is that like imperative shell functional chords that you know the engine part's always going to look nice and then the imperative stuff on the outside which is why when you have that example that i mentioned before like the guessing game or whatever it's just like well that's like there is no logic there it's like a, the the logic is a less than or greater than sign or whatever and then everything else is just you know reading in and outputting um but like a game like Tetris, yeah, there'd probably be a lot of noise, but still like right, the... writing the writing the code. Yeah, the bit in the middle um, will literally be like 
a couple of lines yeah. that, that t- tells if there's a, a line completed or not. But that, that's um, the nature of the paradigm, isn't it? Because an array language programmer is going to get most interested in that little bit in the middle because it sort of breaks the whole thing down. That's why I think it's attractive to people who are into mathematics because you're taking a complex problem with all these layers on top of it, distilling it down to this one little thing, saying, holy smokes, it all boils down to this. And then at that point, the array programmer goes, oh, did it. Oh, and then they get, oh, but by the way, now you have to spend all this time building an interface to make it look flashy. And they're going, yeah, that that's not what I'm into. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> um, and because I would be interested. Yeah, but I think that's that is the nature of array programming is that you tend to get focused on this core stuff that's really conceptually really interesting, and it is a really challenging and it's, and it 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 has this sort of magnet attraction. But I think we do have to come up with ways to make that interaction back to the rest of the world um, a little easier for us to write. And also uh, make a make an allowance. I've heard stories about the big problem with our you know modern civilization is all engineers want to invent new things. Very few want to maintain anything. And th- there's not a lot of sexiness in maintenance. You're just working at making something go on working. But it's really important. Um, I think you have to start to draw back into that, say, you know, that that mindset that says, you know what, I've got this new thing, that's really cool. But what's also really important is I provide a structure around it, I provide this around it, and I'm, I'm basically making something to make it more accessible to everybody, um, not just that little core at the middle that, that to me is so attractive. Rodrigo? Yeah, I was... I was listening to you folks and I I was I was thinking about the fact that I am I'm currently trying to build a a Python um, introductory course and it's aimed at kids. And so I'm very interested in having those flashy examples because of it's it's rewarding to me as <laughs> it's rewarding to me. I'm not exactly a kid anymore, but it's rewarding to get fleshy things working. So it's obviously rewarding to a team. But I I think that there are two things at play here. And one is that if I'm going to make, say, a game in Python, there are plenty of libraries. Yeah, fine. That's great. But then I will end up teaching the library to to those kids and not Python. Right? So what I'll teach them to do is make a bunch of function calls. So I'm not really teaching them programming or I'm not teaching them Python, I'm just teaching them the framework. But then there's one other thing, and that is the framework looks a lot like Python. And in APL, if you have whatever tool to do whatever, maybe maybe we're talking about Sharpleaf and Sharplot, maybe you want to make some plots, and the code for the plots looks very different from that core that Bob was talking about, the core that we really want to get down to the problem and really solve the problem and write that code. And this is very subjective, but that code will have a certain look and feel to it. And then adding the shell that makes it flashy and presentable to the rest of the world looks very different. And I think I was thinking that that particular aspect of it might have an impact in as maybe not wanting to spend that much time maybe creating those tools or I don't know, because it just looks different from the rest of the the language. Yeah, one thing I've got on my gets further and further down my to-do list as as time goes on. But uh last year 
in March when we had a, a sort of a Apple Seeds meeting targeting new users and Thomas Gustafsson, the the Stormwind boat simulator guy came and he, he presented, you know, he's doing graphics in raw APL, except he has a bit of middle, middleware that's sort of Windows specifics for when it actually has to draw it to the, sorry, when it actually has to draw it to the screen. But I want to take that and maybe just stick it in, maybe there's a, there's, I know there's JavaScript libraries that will do the drawing to the screen bit, but then maybe you can work towards something that's a bit closer to that where even the bit that turns it flashy is actually uh, raw APL that looks, and they can be used to teach APL itself rather than just, what I've done in the past is, uh, well, I guess I did that for one thing where I computed the like locations of some points that were going to be drawn up, but then I just passed those points to another thing that turned them into balls. But I guess what you want is the APL to do the creation of the, the balls and everything. Everything up to the point where it has to go on a screen, which, you know, you can either, well, at some point you're using some kind of library to talk to graphics drivers, but um, anyway, I think that would be quite a good example if anyone else wants to do it. <laughs> it's got time. For procedural languages, I always think of Scratch, which was the MIT project, which is, you know, basically drag and drop for the different for loops or all the different things. And it's very media driven. So in other words, there's lots of things you can do with your audio and your video and and you can make games with it. And there's a sort of a community thing where they work off of you and show what you've done. Um, to me, that's probably the way to do yeah, you're actually you've created a shell that teaches your concepts as opposed to trying to teach your concepts within the language because coming out of something like scratch i think you understand procedural stuff pretty well and then you can go back into a language and you've sort of learned the paradigm recently at, at the last week's jay wiki um i think it was art anger said to me like we, we talked a bit about scratch as a as an entry point, something like that. He says, why couldn't you do Scratch for J or Scratch for APL? And I said, you know, it's funny. I thought of that at one point, and I just, I've never really developed it. I just, and I'm, I'm sort of feeling the same way. I think Adam actually made a thing at one point that was um, sort of a visual drag and drop plugs, and it was like you got a primitive symbol, and it had two slots if it was dyadic. He did start on that, but, you know, yeah. But having said that, like, what do you do beyond your dyadic? I think the thing with the for loop is you can drop something in there and there's only integers fit in that. And then, you know, you've got these different types. With APL or with J, okay, so you've got monadic and you've got dyadic. Okay. You've got operators <laughs> and you've got verbs or, you know, conjunctions, adverbs, and verbs. Okay. And then past that, everything can fit onto each other. That's the magic of it. But you don't have that, this only fits here sort of thing, which is what you're kind of teaching with Scratch in a procedural language. Um, so the power of the language is you can fit all these things together. That makes it hard to do that way because you can fit all these things together. So it's like throwing a bunch of Legos out on the table and saying, okay, make something with it. Well, this could fit here, it could fit here, it could fit here. Yeah, the idea is you think about where it could fit, <laughs> but that's what you're actually trying to teach, not so much by physical connection, how they mm. go together, because they all fit together. But why mm. would you do it this way? Mm -hmm. And that's a, a different kind of, a, again, I think you're dealing with a different paradigm, so it does take a different approach. 
you're trying to abstract that paradigm that you're teaching, not the syntactic sugar that goes with it. Yeah, we go back to oh, what would Aaron's what would Aaron do? Because <laughs> his he had this one talk about does APL need uh, ADTs, and he's like, no, everything's arrays, you, but you use the arrays to do the representation. That's where part of the imagination comes in. So you have to come up with the representation of the thing you're trying to do as an array. And an APL lets you do all of the manipulation and the shuffling and stuff. Um, but maybe something about visualizing different things represented in arrays. I I don't know. This can't go anywhere <laughs> anywhere from this discussion. Like I'm not developing this right now. Uh, but it's interesting. Mm. Well, somebody might. You know, somebody might take it and run with it. And that would be really interesting to see where they go. It's interesting what Rodrigo said earlier about the libraries not looking like the language, because that's actually, um, there's a very famous talk by Guy Steele, one of the uh, creators of Scheme, uh, Lisp dialect, and that talk's called Growing a Language, which it comes in paper form as well. And in that talk, he mentions APL and says that he thinks the key reason that APL wasn't successful was exactly what Rodrigo mentioned. It's that a user, when they write APL, it doesn't look like the language. Their library, or if they create a library or whatever they're creating, um, it, you, you have no way. I mean, I know that there are implementations of APLs that en enable you to define your own new Unicode symbols, but obviously that's like it's a non-starter in terms of a scalability kind of thing. You're not going <laughs> to... Um, you're not going to want to do that at scale, but, uh, yeah, he mentions that it's the fact that when you write your own code, it looks wildly different than, um, the core language of APL. And I don't know if I agree or disagree, but it's just interesting that you commented on that Rodrigo with respect to sort of teaching beginners. And if you're going to focus on some library, sure, maybe in a language like Python, it's not the end of the world. Cause it, it does sort of look like it still is Python and sure you you have to teach them a framework but at least it still looks like the language that you intended to teach them. Um, whereas with APL, if you're going to teach them, you know, whatever it is, the, the two different, what was it? Sharp plot and sharply for quad WC for the, um, that, that stuff's going to end up looking at least to a certain extent, um, different than your classic examples that don't have anything to do with plotting or, or graphics. But, but Jay kind of works against that because, what I write in J looks exactly like, I mean, not the DLLs the call, that are the calls for the primitives, because that goes off to C. But other than the fact that I've got a primitive to start with, the, the things I'm writing look exactly like the other parts of the structure of the language, the, the, the Z locale, all the utilities that are around. When you dive into them, if they're not going to a DLL, they are written exactly the same type of language that I would write if I was writing my own verbs. I mean, not to bring his his ghost in here, but that is, I think, largely Aaron's reason for structuring co-defense the way he does. He leans heavily into trains. He uses one-letter uh, variable names, and it's partially so that the end code, I think, you can see it. it that really looks like APL. You see a lot of systems-heavy APL stuff, and uh, it's heavy on the control structures and big uh, imperative-style loops and even literal calls to .NET things that make it look like c-sharp code you know um so maybe that is a, a part worth exploring whether it'll be the key to apl's longevity well who the hell knows <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs>
<laughs> well, I think I'm not actually sure when we started recording, but I feel like we're we're past past the hour mark here, um, and we've. It's been 35 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and we've we've covered a uh, a breadth of topics from from uh, Rodrigo's beginnings and uh, Python to APL to Wordle to to Aaron like several times. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just like to I just like to highlight that Connor has a Scrabble dictionary just lying around in his computer, always at hand. I mean. As one does, as one does. Uh, it's also on my GitHub for those that uh, you go go to my GitHub page and look for the Scrabble repo if you'd like it. Um, I think it's fourth edition, not fifth edition, so um, don't at me. And for Scrabble people, they'll know what that means. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a frustrating day. There's a, there's a story. A frustrating day when you're playing Scrabble and someone plays a two-letter word, D-A, and you're like, that's not a word. And uh, then you go to ScrabbleDictionary.com and... And you lose that challenge because uh, the the fifth edition is now out, and they've added. Um, and does your opponent know that? They do not. They do not. No, they're just guessing. And uh, <laughs> you know what's up. They don't. And anyways, I'm, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it. Um, well, no. Let's dive into that. What is da? <laughs> I don't, well, actually, let's. That'll be a good closing note here. Bear with me. Bear with me. Uh, it works in Portuguese, screen. but I'm assuming the Scrabble dictionary is English. <laughs> <laughs> da um play along listener if you're i have the definition now i'll give you a couple seconds to think what you think it means and it is the definition is a single word and it is dad no oh right fair enough Ugh. another two-letter word that was uh added in the uh fifth edition was om om which is a mantra used in contemplation of ultimate reality yes all right, this uh, this episode fully fully gone off the rails. Um, one thing I will say, I was talking before about generational. I have a tremendous amount of hope going forward. When Richard, I think, was saying, you know, so it depends where we go from here, and hopefully, it's in good hands. It's in good hands. Um, the, the newer generation that I see coming on, people using the language, um, I'm just terrifically impressed with a, a number of things um one of which they're super bright um i i did a, a i guess i sat in with remy clark on and uh on the discord and he was he, he was in japan i was in west coast of north america and I didn't realize he was in Japan, but the point was is he's going through all this stuff that he's doing um, with Jay, and I'm just going, wow, I, yeah, whole. And he comes up with this really interesting invisible modifier that just blew me away. Well, I, I realized at that point there's no problem with people coming up with new things or the new generation discovering new things. They're absolutely automatically doing that. But the second thing, and I think is really important to the whole community, is... I still see that same sense of community supporting each other in these languages, uh, which doesn't always happen in other languages. And sometimes it's been the downfall of some very useful languages. The, the culture, I find, is really supportive and tends to help, tends to teach more than it is trying to show off, which I think is, um, I mean, everybody's going to have different, everybody wants to show a little bit. But the point is, is mostly if you go into any of these groups and ask a question, you're not going to get flamed. You're going to get some really interesting answers and usually very useful and quite often step by step how to do something. Because everybody knows these languages are hard to 
change your concepts at the beginning. Everybody's been there. So as a result, I think that makes the community really supportive. And I, 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 I have lots of faith in the future of these languages just because I see those two things happening. Really bright people being helpful to each other. That's, a, that's the core. That's a perfect way to end it uh, on that hopeful note. Um, yeah. Any, any other last things? I guess, Bob, you've got the array, contact at array, something, something. I should know, but I don't. <laughs> contact at arraycast.com. <laughs> yeah, that's how to get in touch with us. Um, actually, there was a really uh, interesting idea somebody came up with that I think we're going to probably do in a, in a future show, and it had to do with control flow and uh, those kind of things. So um, definitely, if you suggest ideas, if you su- suggest guests, uh, last week or last two weeks ago, uh, Aaron Chu was the guest, and uh, Aaron was suggested. I mean, we wanted Aaron on anyway, but there was a number of suggestions and a number of responses, people saying they were really happy happy to see him on. So that's a way to get in touch with us. The show notes are important. Um, the transcript, the big thing, my, my big effect by Rodrigo is the transcript is done most, most episodes by Rodrigo. He does that and fires it over to me so I don't have to. And that's a huge job. And I just want to say really appreciative of the work that you do on that. And he's got his hand up. So he's going to say something now. Just to defend myself, actually, most of the transcript is automatically generated. I just try to. <laughs> I just spend an insurmountable amount of hours putting the sentences together. But thank you, Bob. <laughs> but yeah, a couple of times I've had to do work from that machine code generated transcript. And that's still hours and hours of reformatting and, and laughing at all the mis spellings because those sometimes those are hilarious but uh yeah it's a tremendous amount of work and it happens every time and i think it benefits everybody because you can always go to the episode and read it and uh, and good for you thank you for doing that yeah huge thanks to rodrigo not just for that but also for for coming on and being our guest today um as i mentioned before yeah links to all of rodrigo's content in the form of his youtube channel uh talks that aren't on his youtube channel but that he's given at other conferences uh his blog um your book also too. <laughs> uh, is there other, other content that I'm missing that, um, that we want to plug right now? Cause I know you've got, uh, I, I think that's plenty. <laughs> I think that's plenty. All right. So yeah. <laughs> and potentially there's going to be a Python course that's coming out in the future as well. So stay tuned for that. Um, in, in the future at some undefined date, uh, and I, I just want to say about Rodrigo's videos, the thing that amazes me about them is he goes in cold with a with a problem and then solves it live, which I've never had the guts to do. When I do a video, I figured it out ahead of time. He doesn't. And occasionally he backs up and starts again. But I think that's just so impressive. And actually, I think that shows the power of array languages as much as anything else, that you can be that flexible and change and go back and forth and come up with these answers. So his videos are really worth checking out. Especially if you like leak code, because a lot of his most recent videos, uh, honestly, I, I love them because they're short and I usually end up learning at least one or two things um, from each one. I think Rich, you actually, we plug Rich's channel as well. Rick, Rickety P also used to, I mean, not, not as much, yeah, not as much recently, but you used to also solve like leak code or Pearl <laughs> Weekly Challenge. Yeah, I haven't made content in a while. Yeah, should get back on yeah. it. Two different, and Bob, we'll plug your YouTube channel too. And mine, we're plugging, I guess all four of us have YouTube channels. 
<laughs> check the show notes uh and you can uh, start with rodrigo's channel and if you uh you get through all of his videos you can work our way uh, to the rest of ours um but with that i uh, i think we'll say happy array programming happy array programming, happy array programming. <laughs>